Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. This is Rebecca Mackay, and my new novel is I Have Some Questions for You. I've spoken with Rebecca Mackay many times over the years, so it was a given that I would visit with her once again about her newest novel, I Have Some Questions for You, a literary mystery with a feminist take. The book expertly weaves themes including the true crime phenomenon, sexual assault, racism, and classism, but it does so with an almost neutral tone that allows readers to form their own opinions on what happened and how we should report on these things as a society. I recently spoke with Rebecca Mackay about the prevalence of violence against women, the similarities between the setting of her novel and her own life, and much more. I'm Beth Goulet from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so this novel tackles several themes that you wove together seamlessly. You know, our, our fascination with true crime, institutional collusion, racism, classism, gender bias, especially regarding violence toward women. Let's begin by setting up the novel for our listeners. Talk to me about Bodie and the first part of the book, which takes place over a two-week period in New Hampshire. What are we reading? Right. Well, I've been telling people it's a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. All of that's true. But more specifically, we have this woman in her 40s. She's a film historian. And she is invited back to teach for two weeks at the Granby School, which is the fictional boarding school in New Hampshire that she attended in the 90s as a very adrift kind of teenager. While she's there, of course, her mind is back on the 90s, especially the 1995 murder of a young woman she had been roommates with the previous year. And there's someone in prison for that. The school's athletic trainer, a Black man, was convicted very quickly. There are a lot of people online who insist that the wrong person is in prison. And in fact, the whole case has become a matter of public interest. While Bodhi is back on campus, she starts to realize that these internet detectives who she's laughed off are probably right. So does this book have an origin story? I mean, what made you want to write about true crime podcasting? I know that's just one small part of this, but does it have an origin story? I mean, not not a simple one. One point of origin, I do live on the campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches, which is near Chicago. I've lived here for a long time with him, weirdly. So I met my husband out east. I'm the one who dragged him back to Chicago. And the place where he got the job was my old high school. So this This campus where I live, this is the campus of the school that I attended as a day student in the 90s. So I live at my high school. So I was always going to write something about boarding schools. I just also think they're really interesting, evocative places. I also think it's a kind of place that a lot of media gets wrong. A lot of movies and, and shows and books get it very wrong. There's that. There's also, you know, I'm fascinated in a lot of crime investigation, a lot of cold cases or things that come back up about the way we're relying on people's memories from 20, 30, 40 years ago. There are times when the people in question were kids at the time. And not only what do you remember, but how was your perception skewed because you didn't understand everything. Those two things, you know, kind of had a natural nexus in looking back on adolescence. 
And that's where the story came from. But I don't, I wish I had some like nice tidy, like I was walking down the street and I saw this one thing and it made this whole novel happen. But, you know, multiple points of origin. Let's talk about perspective for a moment. In chapter one, we're introduced to the first person narrative of Bodie Kane. But the last line of chapter one, you know, we understand that she's telling the story to one person, Mr. Block. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the idea of telling the story this way. And were there any challenges in this structure? <laughs> yeah, right. So it's a first person narrative, but it's also second person in that it's directed to someone. It's this this music teacher who she was, you know, very close to at the time. But looking back with a modern lens is going, wait, he was way too close to some kids, including this girl who was murdered. And all those rumors that we, you know, had about him and her, what if they were true? <laughs> and what would that mean for this, you know, the fact that they never even looked at him when they were investigating this other guy? You know, it, it made things, it made some things easier. I had a certain place to direct all of the frustration, the anger. I had a certain, you know, a person for her. She's really kind of thinking of this at him. She's not writing him a letter or anything, right? So it provided a, a direction, almost like a magnet, you know, on the book for everything to point towards. Of course, the challenge is she's talking to someone who already knows a lot of this stuff. And you don't want that kind of dialogue that's like, hey, remember how we're sisters and how you're the older one, <laughs> like, why would you be saying this to this person? They obviously know. So I needed, you know, excuses. I needed ways for her to tell him things. In some cases, it's things he wouldn't have known. She's like, I don't know if you knew this guy. I don't know if you knew the rumor, but, the, you know, here was the, the student side of things. And in other cases saying, you know, here's what I remember that you did. But I have to do that in a natural way. It's not it's not the downloading of information that this person would already have. So you're jumping through a few hoops narratively, but that but mostly fun. It's funny, I don't really remember making the decision to try that because you try a million things and it doesn't seem momentous in the moment. Like, what if I do this? What if I do this? But I do know why I kept it, which is that it focused the narrative really helpfully. You know, as you mentioned, they were dealing with this 30-year-old crime, and, you know, we have unreliable narrators in, in literature, and because this crime is 30 years old, there's, you know, that reliability of memory. But then, while at the same time this dive into the past was going on, the narrator, her husband is dealing with his own, you know, Me Too accusation of something that happened years earlier, and there's another question of reliable memory. Yes. So I recall a character in the book saying, like, they think it's trendy to accuse people of things. And what struck me, though, is how your book takes us and, and your characters across this wide divide between cultures. We swam in different waters in the 90s, and a lot has happened since then. So talk to me mm -hmm. about writing about these very different times in one book. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, they released the new uh, historic American girl dolls and they're from the 90s. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like they're baiting us, you know, <laughs> and I think that's also like they have the original American girl crowd. Like that's the moms now. So here you go. I just I, I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> anyway, my point, what I was starting to say, we're looking back on the 90s. And you start to realize it feels like it just happened. It feels like everything from 2000 on has been one long decade. But then you look back and you go, oh my God, I can't believe we acted that way. I can't believe the things we said. I can't believe the things we put up with. 
Me Too, you know, was a sea change in the way that people are willing to push back when there's harassment or, or worse. And what's interesting for so many of us, what was interesting in this first weeks, months of Me Too was, you know, there were the big things that we knew were problems, like huge things that had happened to us, huge traumas. But then you're also looking back and going, well, yeah, what about that guy who like made my life hell in the hallway? Or, you know, this boss at the first job who I quit my job because it made me feel so uncomfortable. The sort of death by a thousand cuts kind of things. And, you know, for Bodhi, it's this, this, you know, being dunked back into what is simultaneously still the same campus and all these memories are there, but she's teaching these young Zoomers who they don't have everything figured out. They're kind of, you know, they're still loopy adolescents, but they, because of the way they've been raised by her generation, would never put up with the things that she put up with. And it becomes this stark contrast really puts her into this kind of middle ground. She was very uncomfortable and troubled as an adolescent. She's very successful and secure as an adult. And now she's in between. You know, this is a work of fiction, but you wove in these sections of reality in a, in a rushdy sort of way, you know, describing headlines about violence against women. You were able to mm-hmm. illustrate that these stories have become so commonplace that when we discuss them, it's difficult to distinguish which abuse we're referring to. You know, the one where he kept her in the basement or the one where she went to the frat party, the one where he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer. In addition to like mm-hmm. weaving in these questions, which could be, oh, which abuse are we talking about now? You also included, you know, nods to real high profile men who got away with and were celebrated for being awful. So talk Mm -hmm. to me about the decision to include these references. And I I can't even imagine it was difficult to find material. No. Yeah, there's a sort of refrain or chorus throughout the book where essentially for most of them, what what we're doing is there's a news story on TV that is upsetting Bodhi, this kind of something that, that keeps getting updated. And she's refusing to tell us or to tell Mr. Block who she's talking to which one it is. She's like, you know what? It's all of them at once. It's this one and this one and this one and this one. And at some point, it's more her saying, oh, remember this one, remember this one, you know. So there there are different ways these lists work. Some of the things she references are real. Some of them I completely made up, um, which was kind of, you know, it wasn't that hard to do. The idea being there's just this litany, there's this deluge of these stories You could do the same thing for, say, mass shootings or police brutality, where there are individual ones that for some reason capture your attention. Uh, Maybe you relate to someone in that story or they're from your town or whatever it is, right? Or just for, for reasons you can't even understand, they stick in your mind. And there are other ones that it's just part of this noise. And, you know, someone brings it up and you're like, wait, was that the one? And then you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that one. And because there are so many. That was the effect that I wanted here. This effect that, you know, you you know, could splice all day the reasons that we're interested in these stories. But the fact that they're out there and the fact that this happens, the fact that, you know, women are killed by domestic partners so frequently, you know, you're standing under a waterfall. Um, you stand your whole life under a waterfall. It does something to you. Your narrator... Bodhi. She is a successful podcaster teaching the next generation how to do the same. But she encounters some meaningful questions from her students about who gets to tell the stories and why. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about what do you think about the way our society views and obsesses about true crime? Right. I mean, first of all, we always have. This is nothing new, right? And I keep reminding people, they they literally sold souvenirs outside the Lindbergh baby murder trial. Like, we're, we're, in some cases, we're not as bad as we used to be, right? I think there's something evolutionary, is my theory. You know, for most of human history, like, oh, that guy is dead over by that berry bush. I should work out what happened, Hmm, maybe there's something to learn here. <laughs> like, let's let was it the berries? Let's figure it out. Oh, this purple stuff around his mouth. Yeah, I think it was. There's just that instinct that we have. Tell me everything. There's there might be something here that I need to know. You know, other times it's just like, wow, this is the most dramatic thing I've ever seen. I want, you know, kind of rubbernecking. But I think those two things can also coexist. This book definitely does not come down on the side of either true crime media is good or bad because it's like saying music is good or bad. Like, like there's, there's good stuff. There's bad stuff. You know, there are true crime podcasts and Reddit boards and whatever that have done serious innocence project work, or that have identified Jane Doe's or have gotten people to submit familial DNA and solved cases. Right. And then there are podcasts and Reddit boards and whatever that just end up harassing suspects who probably had nothing to do with it or re-traumatizing families or glamorizing some of this stuff, you know, glamorizing a serial killer, not a helpful thing to do. And this book, you know, I, I don't want to come down on one side or another. I want to muck around in the tar pit and see what happens. Have you listened to the audiobook? I've listened to snippets and uh, I'm very happy. Julia Whalen, who does most of it, is an author herself, which is really fun, but also an actor. And she's and I know this is airing later, but as we're speaking tonight, she and I are doing a virtual event together, which is going to be so fun. And then J.D. Jackson uh, is an actor who just does one chapter for reasons that I maybe don't want to explain for spoilery reasons. But I'm thrilled with getting both of them on board with this. I won't ask the question then because I was going to talk to you. Oh, no, you can. You can. Well, less, you know, less. the recorded audio from Omar in prison it was yes. genius. I mean, I listened and read the book simultaneously because that's how my brain works. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, I listened to Julia Whalen talk through the whole thing and all of a sudden mm -hmm. the audio has a different tone. It is like yeah. a recorded interview that aired on the podcast. Yeah. And I just thought it was absolutely genius. Can you talk to me about coerced confessions and what you learned about the penal system that surprised you? Yeah. Oh, God. Well, that. And then I, I want to talk about that chapter some more, too. But yeah, New Hampshire is one of the states that does not require recording of police interrogation. So someone was in that room for 15 hours. You don't know what was said. All you got is the confession at the end. And that is hugely problematic. Why would we not just record? It's not like we're paying for like cassette tapes anymore. Just record it. <laughs> and, and sleep deprivation. You don't have to beat someone up to get them to that point. Sleep deprivation can do it, right? In this case, the idea that they can threaten someone with one little thing and go, well, if you confess to this bigger thing, it'll all be fine. But oh, now we have you on that. Well, what about this? You know, anyone who watched Making a Murderer and seeing the way they interrogated that teenager who, you know, was low IQ, did not understand what was going on. You know, I think that was really eye-opening for a lot of people in understanding what a police interrogation can be. So, you know, I, I knew some of that going in. You know, I did, for a lot of my research, I was working with a public defender from New Hampshire who was telling me stories that, like, 
my, my head and spin around. And, you know, it's just, it's basically worse than you could imagine <laughs> is the takeaway. Getting that audio, it, I was so thrilled because all along, I do think about the audiobook a little because I, I am someone who consumes a lot of books on audio. And basically Omar has been in prison and we don't get to hear his voice, which is, it's a strange line to tread because the whole point in many ways is no one gets to hear from him. He's He's been silenced, but then I don't want the book to also silence him, even though he's fictional. Early on, you know, in a complicated way, we do learn about what's happening to him in prison. But it's very important to me that he really gets finally this chapter where he gets to tell his side of the story. And I knew as I was writing that, I was like, I want on the audio I want for this stark contrast, I want us to suddenly literally hear his voice. And then the audio producer from Penguin, when she got in touch, she was like, I have this idea. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what I wanted. I wouldn't have known how to do the thing of, you know, wouldn't have thought of the thing of making it sound like a recording. They put some kind of filter on it. And it. I, so I did listen to that chapter. And oh, my God, I love how it turned out. The murder, and I have some questions for you, is nearly 30 years old, as we have discussed Yet this was a suspenseful murder mystery with a sense of urgency. Where did that urgency come from? Was it the burden of the wrongfully accused or something else? Well, I think as she's realizing that the wrong man is in prison, that's an emergency, right? That is like every day that is lost of this guy's life in prison. You don't just kind of casually, you know, take your time. And that, of course, the legal system casually takes its time. But there's real urgency there. Of course, I'm not writing a thriller in the sense that I think in a thriller, there has to be present danger. Someone's life has to be at stake. It has to be like, and the killer's going to strike again, right? It's not that. But I think there can still be urgency to looking back and trying to get things right. There can still be urgency on a very realist level of, you know, we're so close. Let's get this. Let's figure this out while these people are still alive. You know, let's figure this out before this building that's been sitting there that might have evidence under the coats of paint before it gets torn down, time is still of the essence. And I, of course, as an author, I want that urgency for any reader. I want you to keep turning pages. I know I have to earn every page turn. I don't just deserve this read just because you picked up the first page doesn't mean you're now hooked in. I got to keep you reading. I got to, whether it's keep you up late reading or just got to get you to pick up the book tomorrow, got to earn it. It was just the perfect level of tension. So talk to me about crafting such a detailed and, and layered mystery novel, because I imagine the planning and outlining was extensive. Was writing and plotting similar to what Bodhi was doing, you know, going through plausible suspects and the like? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I, I knew pretty early on for sure, who did it and why. And I knew how that would get figured out. But I needed also for there to be many other plausible suspects. And, and we have this recurring thing where Bodhi is really trying to imagine what it could have looked like if different people did this. So if Omar Evans, who's in prison, if he did this, what would that actually look like? And if, you know, if this woman, this this young woman who's been accused online, if she did that, what would that actually look like? That, of course, is clarifying for me, too. I'm going through and figuring out what are the possible timelines? Who else could have possibly done this? 
And plenty of it is not worked out ahead of time. Plenty of it is going to come as a surprise to me. I'll be a little cryptic here, but there's a character who reemerges late in the book, a woman who reemerges and has a lot of things to say. I did not know that that was going to happen. That was a surprise to me. I mean, obviously it wasn't like I watched my fingers typing and go, (laughs) whoa, what are you typing there? But I had not planned that out until suddenly went, okay, you know what? I think, I think this is who knows. So there's, there's a lot of discovery. I had a lot of fun making maps and timelines and all those things too. Kind of as you would if you were really trying to solve a real thing. So do you have a hope for readers what they will take Mm -hmm. away from the book? Yeah, you know, there is certainly social stuff to think about in terms of wrongful incarceration, in terms of police interrogations that I, I think if you didn't already know this, you should learn it. The way that prisoners are treated when they're being brought to trial. Like if this is news to you, look into it. But for some people, it isn't news. And what I would say universally is I would hope that readers would look back on their own adolescence. And this book is not, you know, indicting anyone, interrogating anyone, just it's an invitation. Look back and, you know, how accurate are your memories? What are the things that you put up with that you shouldn't have? What are the things you took part in that you shouldn't have? What systems were you part of that you were not aware of? Were you as much of an outsider as you thought? Because we all thought we were outsiders. Were you really? I mean, or or just realizing that we all were, right? That there's nothing different about that than, I don't know anyone who's like, yeah, that was a great, I really was in the in crowd. It was fantastic. Because maybe maybe they knew that they had many friends, but adolescence was still rough in in Lord knows what ways, right? Just casting an eye back. I would love for people to like bring their high school yearbooks to the book club. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what I want. So what have you been reading lately? Yeah, I'm doing this project where so my father passed away in 2020, early 2020. He passed away in Hungary, so I couldn't get there for a memorial service. But he was, among other things, a literary translator. And so I've decided that I'm going to, my memorial for him is that I'm reading my way around the world, reading 84 books in translation. So I started in Hungary. He lived to be 84. I started in Hungary. I'm going to end in Hungary. I just finished this Turkish novel called Madonna in a Fur Coat from the 1940s. It's beautiful. I'm doing Syria next. And um, I'm tweeting about it. I'm writing about it on my Substack. And I have a bunch of people reading along. So it's and it's just my name, Rebecca Mackay, on like all those handles, Twitter, whatever. If anyone wants to read in translation, I'm not going to make you read 84 books. It's just that people <laughs> are joining in once in a while and talking about them. But you won't be cool if you don't do it. <laughs> the book is I Have Some Questions for You. Rebecca Mackay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beth. That was Rebecca Mackay, author of the book I Have Some Questions for You, which was published by Viking. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.